Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Okay, we're talking about free will with regard to Asimov stuff. Now, there's two types of free will. So we have the situation in which in the discussion of whether Rose is going to attack the founded, the traitors or not, and Barr's responding, saying it doesn't really matter whether you do attack or you don't attack. And then the question is, what is free will? If the outcome, in terms of the aggregate, the law of large numbers, the masses, is already determined, if it's going to turn out, if if Asimov's psychohistory is stating that it's going to turn out one way or the one way or the other, no matter no matter what you do, then what actually what actually is free will? Now, is is the general wrong when he says that he does have free will, that he has the choice to make a decision, to decide whether he's going to attack <coughs> or not to attack? Is he wrong? Does he have the free will to attack? Well, I think ultimately it's up to the emperor, so the general doesn't really have free will. Ultimately it's up to the what? Emperor, isn't it? I mean, he can't attack without the emperor's... Well, at that point, he has the ships, and he could attack. And it's true that he takes orders from the, from the emperor, but the general could actually say, okay, I'm going to throw the troops in now and actually make the attack. Um, if he has the choice to attack, if he has the choice and he can actually say, I'm going to do it, can you say that that's free will if, in fact, the outcome, as Barr is arguing, is already predetermined? I think <coughs> you can say he has free will to decide because I think that Selden's plan for the masses like contains within it like a few alterations here and there, like whether or not he decides to attack Selden has kind of already taken in the give or take of decisions like that. So I think that he has free will to decide, but that at the same time it's not going to affect Selden's predictions. Well, this raises a good point. Can you have free will if you can predict? <coughs> Does prediction imply the absence of free will? If you can say that such and such a thing is going to happen, is free will no longer there? Well, I think Selden, I mean, because he doesn't work with single numbers, he works with these huge masses. Um, built in, there's always that free will, and I think what he's predicting is actually what people will choose to do with that will on the most part, and that most people will do this at this time. Um, and so I think he's actually banking on the free will that people have, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. it's not 
negating it by predicting it. It's just predicting what they'll choose to do. Now, if he can successfully predict what they're going to choose to do on the mass, on the large number, then isn't it already determined? And then if it is already determined, is it really free? Philosophers have been dealing with this question forever. Do you have free will if you can predict something? Like outside of the novel, <coughs> just because you have a prediction doesn't mean that that prediction is correct. So like outside of the novel, I think that if you have a prediction, you can still have free will because the pre- like you can know that that prediction is for sure not set in stone. There are millions of things that could affect it to change it, including people's decisions that they make. All right. <coughs> What is the, the key to being able to predict the masses if all the individuals have free will? Let us say that each individual has free will. What's the relationship then between the masses to the law of large numbers, the law of large numbers versus the individual? Well, if people have the right to decide, you can take that and then also understand that a lot of times people are going to agree on different subjects, so you're going to have a consensus. So you can still have individuals thinking, it's just that the individuals all may agree with each other. And so then you have like a mass number of people all agreeing on like this certain thing. Mm-hmm. Well, you can certainly have that agreement. What happens if you have a bunch of people interacting and they're all making decisions? And on average, they're all going to decide to go one way. But let us say that one person changes his or her mind. And then another person changes in the opposite way his or her mind. What will be the average outcome? If it's a large enough number of people, it will stay about the same. It'll be the same. Two people switching positions, the aggregate, the average is the same. So the individuals had free will to change their opinions. But on the average, nothing happened. So what Asimov is talking about now with psychohistory is that you can predict the averages and still have free will on the level of the individual. But on average, individual choices will cancel out each other so that the average will still be predictable. So it's interesting, when he talks about psychohistory, he's talking about individuals being able to make their own choices within, but the average choice is going to be remaining the same. So you're talking about predicting, but on the aggregate level, but you're not predicting on the individual level. What happens when one individual becomes sufficiently influential to change the aggregate behavior, and that that individual 
has unusual powers that are not uh, incorporated with the with the averages. Those are called outlier events. So when you have an outlier event, an event in which the numbers are totally out of the ballpark, that one event can pull the average in a different direction because it's so far away from the others. That's where we get this issue of the mule, the mutant. The mule's capabilities are on the level of being able to influence human behavior and thus become the new emperor, the new person who's controlling the galaxy. And in so doing that, the mule individually can influence all of history such that he becomes more influential than any one individual. And thus he can change the average, the law of averages, to go away from that. So that's really interesting because the mule is a random mutation, a random event. <coughs> now what does what does Asimov say about this? Now let's get into the third book, the second foundation. What does Asimov say about this? Did he predict? Did he know that such things were ha going to happen? Meaning he's trying to predict the outcome of history to make what would be 30,000 years of dark ages for the galaxy into basically a thousand years before it rebounds and becomes a prosperous civilization again. How does he, in the third book, the second foundation, deal with the issue of inevitable deviations, random mutations that will, whatever they may be, that will change his mathematics? Meaning, if you deal with just <coughs> the law of averages and predict out into the future, what they say with predictions is the farther out into the future you predict with just mathematics, the greater bounds for error, the greater your error is going to be. The stock market or the gross national product or any of the economic indicators. If you're trying to predict what will happen on average in a day, you can be pretty good. A week still, well, okay. You try to predict a year down the line, it becomes more and more difficult, becomes almost impossible. So the farther you go into the future with mathematical predictions based on numbers that were collected in the past, it's like you average up all of your numbers to a certain point, the now point. And then you shoot those numbers into the future <laughs> and you wonder where they go. Well, if you're just shooting a little far, a little way into the future, just a, a small distance into the future, your predictions are pretty accurate. But the farther you go out into the future, the more the future looks totally different because of these random mutations that are not accounted for in the numbers that, are, that were accumulated in the past. So the question is, how does Asimov deal with that? Or how does the character Harry Seldon <coughs> deal with that knowledge that the mathematics of prediction are going to fail once you get far enough out. Something has to correct it. It's a, you might call it a predictor-corrector method. How does he deal with that? Well, I mean, I think in just having the second foundation there, which the second foundation 
unlike the first one, is made up of like psychologists and people who study the mind. I think that they were there to correct any problems that happened because they would be able to think in terms that seldom was with psychohistory. Yeah. There's got to be some corrector method that works differently from the law of our large numbers. Remember, the, the psychohistorians on the second foundation, they're very few. So the only thing they can do is work at critical junctures, small things, influence small things that we're going to leverage out into something big to keep the evolution of the society on some type of general average track that Harry Seldon predicted. Well, what does that mean in terms of Harry Seldon's predictions? Were they worth anything? Just as predictions. The first few were worth something. Nothing really happened. The first few worked okay. But what about the long run? What were the value of those predictions? As predictions. Were they really predictions? I don't think they would have been valuable as predictions at all. Like if he hadn't created the circumstances for them to happen. I don't think they would have happened. It would have happened that way. They certainly were long shots at best. There was a near certain probability they were totally worthless after a few few generations. So predictions out into the future based on just the mathematics were worthless unless you had a corrector method. Now the real question is, do you really have free will then on the level of the society if you have a corrector method. (coughs) You know, this is what political people talk about all the time when they try to bring theology (coughs) into the discussion. Because theology is brought into the discussion of the evolution of humanity all the time. The idea of God Can God let things happen? The basic idea with the God concept is that based on biblical interpretations, we are made in the image of God. Well, if we're in the image of God, then can can we fail? Can God fail? Can God's own children fail? The idea that we're top of the line in terms of all of God's creatures. So the issue is with a theological interpretation of man, can we in fact really fail? Can we muck it up so badly that our civilization will become extinct? Now, in terms of the environment, there are two general lines of thought. And Edward O. Wilson famous Harvard biologist has talked about this in detail in some of his writings and he says that there are two basic types of people that look at the environment 
first type is called the exemptionalists. And the exemptionalists are people who say we are exempt from the iron laws of ecology that govern all other species. That with all other species you just have the laws of predator prey, the laws of the environment, the laws of ecology governing their behavior. But they don't have free will. They don't have thought that is at sufficiently high levels of complexity to be able to determine their own fate. We, however, have the ability to be exempt from the laws of ecology that govern all other species. We can determine our own fate. If there's a problem, we can fix it. We got out of World War One. We got out of World War Two. All other problems we managed to fix, we can fix all those things. Give humanity enough time and enough resources and any problem that we run into, we can sort it out. The environmentalists are the other group, different from the exemptionalists. The exemptionalists also basically say that because we are of the highest order of intellectual power on the planet in God's image, that we are incapable of failing completely because God is looking over us. The environmentalists, <coughs> on the other hand, according to Edward O. Wilson, take the opposite tack. God gives us free will. And free will means the ability to screw it up royally, to be really messed up, to get rid of all of our civilization <laughs> completely, to become extinct. And that the environment is so complex that it's foolish for us to think that we could micromanage something that individual dis individual things are happening at such a small level in the jungles and in the rivers and in the environment and the weather that we could never hope to manage all of that stuff. Well, the environmentalists then say we have only one planet we have to take care of this planet as best we can and that basically means protecting nature in as pristine as condition as possible because of an understanding that our intellect can easily fool us into thinking we can handle things when we can't handle things and it's better to be safe than cocky and think you can handle it when in fact you don't handle it and the environmentalists will say, in all of human history, you see, you, you see one screw-up after the next. The only difference is, in all of those other screw-ups, humanity did not have the capability to destroy the entire planet. But whatever humanity did have the capability to do, it did destroy it. <laughs> the Holocaust. It gets into fights, into wars, all the time. Desertification we have destroyed you know, many environments that used to be pristine and made deserts out of it. If you go back to the Anasazi Indians in, in the southwest of the United States, apparently those areas were totally forested. And the Anasazi cut down all the trees in order to burn them for firewood, and that was the end of it. Environmental disaster. And the whole place turned into what we now know as the desert southwest. Forestless. So wherever humanity does act, it can destroy the environment. So the environmentalists say we need to just simply protect the environment from ourselves. So that's that big tug of war. And so when we ask the question about 
whether we can have free will, whether we can have free will. You have to say that Harry Seldon's perspective, thus Asimov's perspective in the development of psychohistory, is basically one of saying you can predict in general, based on past behavior, the law using the law of large numbers, the future into into certain into into some some amount into the future. But eventually, those predictions are going to be wrong. And it is very possible when you get farther into the future for humanity to go off in, into a into a bender, like into a wild drunk, and so you're going to get a disaster down the road. So the idea of psychohistory is, if you really want a positive outcome, you cannot really <coughs> allow collective free will. You can allow individual free will. But the difference is, can you allow collective free will? If you want a certain outcome, which is the end of the Dark Ages in a thousand years, versus Dark Ages that last for 30,000 years, then Esimo seems to be saying that you cannot allow that. You cannot allow humanity to have collective free will. You cannot allow it to, in our current situation, destroy the environment. Because it will. Humanity will destroy the environment. Humanity will destroy whatever is going on. And what is the interesting thing about the, sem- the second foundation? Do they, are, they, are they the police cops on the corner? that stop the traffic accidents that everybody can see? What about them? How do they work? Do they work openly, telling people what's going on? In the third book, what is the big struggle? The mule is trying to find out what? Where the second foundation is. Yeah, where it is. That tells you something. They're pretty secretive. It's secret. There wasn't even a certainty among many whether there actually ever did get to be created a second foundation, that there might not even be a second foundation total secrecy. How do you control the masses then? Do you control them with the police cop at the corner that everybody can see? I think it's that you can't let the masses know they're being controlled. You have to let them think that they're make, they have free will and they're making their own choices, but they really aren't. That's <coughs> it. Asimov is stating something fundamental in the issue of governance to control the masses. That's perfect. You said it exactly. To control the masses, you can't let them know they're being controlled. You have to let them think they have free will. But you have to do it secretly. The control, the manipulation. Now, Asimov has this very nice ideal that at the end of a thousand years you get a glorious new empire where there's prosperity throughout the entire galaxy. What is he saying humanity would do if you don't manipulate it secretly? Um, destroy itself. 
Yeah, humanity has a tendency to destroy itself. And so you must manipulate it secretly. You must not let the truth be known. Now this is a very profound thing for Asimov to say. You have to control the masses secretly. You cannot let the truth be known. Let's move on to global warming and ask a question here about secrecy. Last week I asked you to look at the Friday release of the public statement that the United Nations Committee on Global Warming had. Now this was a multi-year, multi-nation discussion and study with the best scientists on the planet Earth studying climatology. But, what did they actually come up with? Notice also at the end of the week, there was some real thrashing going on. There was a lot of pressure. A lot of people on Thursday and on Wednesday were fighting behind the scenes of what was going to be in that final report, the 12-page summary especially. What were they going to say? Now let's take a look at this. And we'll see that what Asimov is talking about is incredibly good. If you understand Asimov, you can really understand a lot about how governance works. Let's look at the New York Times, Saturday, February 3rd. This is the day after the science panel from the United Nations gave its report. The science panel saying global warming is unequivocal. Cites human role. Three-year study foresees centuries of rising temperatures. In a grim and powerful assessment of the future of the planet, the leading international network of climate scientists has concluded for the first time that global warming is unequivocal, unequivocal and that human activity is the main driver, very likely causing most of the rise in temperatures since 1950. They said the world was in for centuries of climbing temperatures, rising seas, and shifting weather patterns, unavoidable results of the buildup of heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere. But the report released here on Friday by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said warming and its harmful consequences could be substantially blunted by prompt action. Now, listen to what some of the panel said. The report is the panel's fourth assessment since 1990 on the causes and consequences of climate change, but it is the first in which the group asserts with near certainty, more than 90%, that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from human activities have been the main cause of warming in the past half century. Now, skipping down... <coughs> The report talks about some numbers. The new report says the global climate is likely to warm 3.5 to 8 degrees Fahrenheit if carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere reach twice the levels of 1750, which is before the Industrial Revolution. Many energy and environment experts see such a doubling, or worse, as a foregone conclusion 
after 2050, unless there is a prompt and sustained shift away from the 20th century pattern of unfettered burning of coal and oil, the main sources of carbon dioxide. And the report said that there is more than a um, that there is more than a one in ten chance of greater of much greater warming, a risk that is that many experts say is far too high to ignore. Now let's get to the sea levels. The warming has set in motion a rise in global sea levels. The report says it forecasts a rise of seven to twenty three inches, twenty three inches, by two thousand one hundred and concludes that the seas will continue to rise for at least a thousand years to come. By comparison, seas rose by about six to nine inches in the 20th century. Now this is very interesting. One of the debates that was going on during the week before this was, was tremendous pressure on what to report, what to actually put into the report, what to actually say what the actual rise in sea levels is going to be. If you go back about five years, they were saying that climate people, governments were saying that there might be a one inch rise, half an inch rise at the year 2100 if global warming continued at the current rate. And this, you know, in terms of the sea levels and that what you might get is a, a few degrees raise in temperature. Then about two years ago, they said, well, actually, that will probably happen by the year 2050. Then about six months ago, the climatologist started to announce that, no, it's not going to be 2050. Move that up to 2040, okay, in terms of when the temperatures are going to be going up. And now they're saying <coughs> that by the year 2100, you'll get 7 to 23 inches rise in sea levels, which is a whole lot more than they were saying before. So you see these people are changing their numbers. What actually are the numbers? Now, these are the governmental people putting these things out. Remember, this is the United Nations, and there's been U.S. role in that, U.S. participants, U.S. people that are, you know, working through the Bush administration, are on this panel as well. United Nations representatives, uh, United States representatives on this panel. And the Bush administration has been very much opposed to the science of global warming up until the current time, in which it's sort of unequivocal that it's actually happening. But up until very recently, they've been saying, no, it's still a debate, and there's no effort to actually restrain um, carbon dioxide gases. So now you have them coming in and saying, okay, we'll agree with the panel that there is global warming, but do they really want to do something about it? Now let's take a look at something else. And then let's get this back to Asimov. What I have here is something from the web, and this is... from the National Snow and Ice Data Center. And they're a group that's associated with the University of Colorado at Boulder. But it's a national group, and it's among the most prestigious in terms of 
academics with some government involvement to study the climate. Now listen to what they have been saying. Is global, this is the, the state of the cryosphere. <laughs> is the cryosphere, you know, the, the, free, the frozen parts, are they, is, it, is the cryosphere sending signals about climate change? Global sea level is currently rising as a result of ocean thermal expansion and glacier melt, both caused by recent increases in global mean temperature. Antarctica and Greenland, the world's largest ice sheets, make up the vast majority of the Earth's ice. If these ice sheets melted entirely, the sea level would rise by more than 70 meters, not inches, meters. <laughs> How many feet are we talking about? We're talking a few hundred feet, three, four hundred feet. Now, um, this is strange because by the year 2040, we're now expecting that the Arctic will be completely melted. And much of Greenland will be melted as well. So we'll be very far along towards that issue of melting the poles and by the year 2040. Well, how does this make sense then in terms of this United Nations panel that just came out that said, ah, a few inches up to at the most 23. What do you think is going on there? Well, the government's obviously following, like, they're trying to appease the people without freaking them out. They're trying. The people know now that um, global warming is happening, so they need acceptable numbers without scaring people. Acceptable numbers. You need acceptable numbers. <laughs> Here's a pure science group coming out of the University of Colorado at Boulder, claiming without ambiguity, these people are, you know climatologists which are talking, that are working independently. And a very prestigious group. Again, it's the National Snow and Ice Data Center. You're talking hundreds of feet rise in sea level. What would happen if the United Nations panel said by the year 2040, the sea level is not going to rise by 7 to 23 inches, but 20 to 200 feet. What would happen? Now, 2040 is not very far away, folks. That's 35 years. That's like a blink. What would happen if they said 70 to 200 feet in a few decades? Panic. There'd be disruption. Well, that's what they, that's at least what a lot of governments would think, especially the United States government that doesn't want anything to destroy the status quo in terms of the markets. Something like sea levels rising 70 to a few hundred feet <coughs> would basically be say, all of you who have investments in Houston, New York, Miami, <laughs> London. London, I mean every major city, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is at sea level. If the sea level goes up even 70 feet, let alone a few hundred feet, Washington has to move. I mean, the Potomac River is sea level. Washington's got to go. 
the capital will be like Venice. It'll be, uh, you know, water will at least be up the steps, probably into the buildings. The question is, where is the capital going to go? And we're talking not a long time. We're talking like around the corner, a few decades. So what is Asimov telling us about, about the people? Now, the information is available. I mean, I got it. I got it from the National Snow and Ice Data Center at the University of Colorado at Boulder. The information is clearly available. And the numbers that the government's people are putting out are changing every month. They're saying the numbers are going up to a few degrees, a few degrees, and they're moving the time from 2,100 to 2,050 to 2,040. Their numbers are changing all the time. Why? Because the science numbers are so firm. So what do you see? That the government is being forced to state some things, but they certainly don't want the whole kitchen sink out there. What is Asimov telling us about the masses? Obviously, the masses have access to the information because I have access to the information. I didn't have to put in a password to get that website stuff. And the news people have access to that as well. But did the news people put out the information from the scientists? Or did they put out the information from the governmentally influenced scientists? Why? What's going on? Why do you think we're in a situation like that? What is Asimov telling us about about the nature of humanity and the nature of government? Get this back to the psychohistorians. Let's go back to the second foundation, the psychohistorians. It, it can't know that it's being controlled. Let's put it differently. How do you control the masses? Both from the example of what we're dealing with, with global, with global warming, and with what Asimov is saying. How do you control them? By leading them blindly. 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 Because That's the key. If we actually knew where we were going, a lot of people probably wouldn't want to. You could get chaos. So the idea... Actually, you, you may not get chaos. You may get realism. You may get pragmatic solutions. But we don't know that because the government doesn't allow that to happen. What does the government, and this is apparently so generic that Asimov put it in his novels. It's not that we have a bad government. No, 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 Asimov is not saying that. This goes all the way back to civilizations and governments that have gone back as far as we can see. Governments by themselves govern by restricting the information that the masses know. Do the masses seem to be objecting to it? No. They I mean, they're getting what they want. The government's telling them what they want to hear, so if it makes them happy, they're going to keep listening. What would the government have to do if it didn't do that? If it was trying to tell the people the actual truth, that sea levels may rise 70 to a few hundred feet, what would the government have to do It would have to be um, actively trying to prevent this or move well, people. 
certainly try to prevent it, but what would it have to do with respect to the masses? If it gave them that information? Yeah. Look how skeptical you look. If they gave them that information, <laughs> that's exactly right. But you see, put yourself in the position of President Bush. You mean give them that information? That's exactly what they say. You mean give them that information? They would have to... It would be like taking a donkey, wouldn't it? And pushing it forward against its will. <coughs> like... Do they really? And what do what normally happens when you bring unpleasant information to the masses? What's the old saying? What do they do to the messenger of bad news? Shoot them. They shoot them. <laughs> they get rid of the messenger. So the masses don't like to hear bad news. And when you say the world is coming to an end, and this is why, this is why, the messengers from the from as, as long as they can go back. They say, we don't like that. Kill that person. Who's the next messenger bringing, up a ha bringing us a happy message? So the messages that you're always going to be getting from the government are going to be from human nature, not just our government, but governments going all the way back as far as you can remember, in mean, other countries ev everywhere, are going to be on the light side of things. So as Nero fiddles, Rome burns, as things get worse and worse, the government will be holding to a party line that is going to be trying to manipulate the public by telling it the least amount of information that they think they can get away with. So it's an odd thing. So many people like to blame the government for deceiving the people. But Asimov is saying something different. He's saying, if you don't deceive the people, they'll kill you. <laughs> He says, in order to rule, in order to produce any type of mass outcome, you have to have deception because it's the nature of humanity. Isn't that interesting? I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm not saying that's good or bad. But it does seem to be what Asimov is saying, that in order to get a good outcome, you've got to lead the people secretly. They cannot know it. And then the question actually comes in. What if it's a bad outcome? What if the people that are doing the manipulation have their own selfish interests at, my, at heart? Now, in the case of Asimov with the psychohistorians, it's altruistic. The psychohistorians are trying to bring out the golden age in only a thousand years for the whole galaxy. But what do we know about people that have altruistic intentions? Are there many of them? If you were to compare numbers in terms of selfish people or altruistic people, how many people would pile up in each group? Which group would outnumber the others? Selfish ones. Yeah, selfish ones. Now, Edward O. Wilson says this is a normal thing as part of genetic evolution because the selfish people will survive with greater certainty than the prophets, the unselfish people. The people who say, what's in front of my face, the food in front of my face, first? 
then my family, then my village, and then a distant consideration for the rest of the world. Those people will survive the Darwinian evolutionary race the most. So Edward O. Wilson is saying that we are hardwired in our genes to think selfishly. But Edward O. Wilson is also saying that unless we change that hardwiring, when we get to a point where we can actually destroy our entire planet and our whole civilization, unless we change that hardwiring in a short amount of time, we can become extinct. Now, let us say that Edward O. Wilson is correct, that we do have this juggernaut in the evolution of intelligence. We get to the point where we could literally destroy ourselves, and we have a short window of time to save ourselves through the use of our intellect to realize that we can't be driven by our selfish genes, but now have to be driven by altruistic understandings. Let us say that that's there. What is Asimov saying about that? Asimov and Edward O. Wilson are both saying there's going to be a tough time period. Edward O. Wilson is saying humanity has to evolve quickly to use intellect to stop acting with selfish motivations that are genetically programmed into our thinking and to start acting altruistically to save the environment. What is Asimov? What is Asimov's response to Edward O. Wilson? Now, of course, Edward O. Wilson is still alive and still talking. Asimov is in dead, and this was written long before. But intellectually, we can still say that those, those ideas are having a dialogue. I and mean, what's Asimov's response to that way of thinking, to Edward O. Wilson's way of thinking? I think he's saying that the people aren't going to want to act in um, or altruistically. Altruistic, They're going to want to act for self-preservation and out of selfish motives. So you have to make them think that um, this is going to preserve them and so that they'll um, <coughs> act for the greater good. Yeah, that's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying Edward O. Wilson is wrong. He's saying Edward O. Wilson is wrong. It's not going to happen. There isn't going to be an enlightenment. Asimov is saying, if you want to get the masses to a point where they survive, you've got to manipulate them secretly. But what do you get when you have leaders that are selfishly oriented because they have that hardwired genetic structure as well? Who's doing the manipulation to get them that way? Now, Asimov says you have to create a secret foundation that cannot be discovered, hidden. <coughs> and then you have to develop a culture within that foundation that is like monks, like Tibetan monks, permanently altruistic, sealed off from the rest of the environment, focused on the idea of helping humanity. Do you get the idea? It's <laughs> you've got to raise them culturally differently. And then use those people to manipulate the masses secretly. Boy, if the masses knew that that was happening, they'd kill them, wouldn't they? That they were being manipulated? And then, humanity, according to Edward O. Wilson and Ed Asimov, humanity would go off and kill itself. 
It's really very interesting. See what a difficult situation we're facing? One of the things about science fiction is it doesn't always give you answers. In this case, we don't have answers. We just have questions. Asimov and Edward O. Wilson are pointing to the same questions. <laughs> Edward O. Wilson is saying this is one possible answer, a utopian answer, a hopeful answer. And Asimov is saying, don't bet on it. If you want to have the survival of humanity, you have to do something. And it's going to have to be secret. But you're also going to have to get it to be altruistic. In a sense, the correspondence between, between Edward O. Wilson and Asimov is, you can get utopian, altruistic, positive evolution, but not from the masses, only on the level of the leadership. So Asimov is saying you have to structure the leadership like the psychohistorians so that they're altruistic, close them off from the environment, seal them away, and let them manipulate the masses. This goes all the way back to uh, Plato's idea of the philosopher king. Do we really have the ability to govern ourselves as a democracy in an age in which humanity can destroy itself. Fascinating. I don't have any answers to this, but they are questions. It makes you think deeply about the nature of democratic governance. If democratic governance fully exploited, fully enforced, I mean fully, fully manifested, if it's suicidal, can you really have fully democratic governance? There's no answer. We'll continue. <laughs>